Andrei Soldorov is an endangered species. He is an independent investigative journalist in Russia, a country where words like objectivity and journalistic integrity, they don't exist anymore. The state runs a fine-oiled propaganda machine that does not like people poking their noses around where they don't belong. They'll get chopped off with the quickness. But that fact hasn't stopped Andre. His investigations into the Russian secret services and Vladimir Putin's attempts to control the Russian internet are some of the best reporting you'll see anywhere. In part two, we discuss the complicit nature of Western companies in allowing the Russian state to destroy freedom of speech. We talk Edward Snowden, who Andre has been very critical of, and the amazing hope that he somehow still has for the future. So here is part two of my talk with Andre Soldatov. And then what happens is on July 4th, Independence Day of all things, 2014, <laughs> which is just, you know, that was planned. The Russian parliament, the Duma, they pass a law that prohibited storage of any Russian's personal data anywhere but in Russia. So basically what this law was saying was that the servers of Twitter and Facebook and Google must now be located in Russia. People inside of security services, they started talking about their concerns uh, about, say, Facebook and Twitter already in 2011. They told me, look, the problem is we do not know what to do with them. They are all based in, uh, in other countries, which means that we cannot crack them, and we cannot intercept their messages using SORM. The black box. In black boxes, yeah. Why? Mostly because of some technical issues, like... Um, to make it work, you have to actually physically put it on the server. Yeah, yeah. before the encryption starts. That, that's the point. That's the point. That's why we insisted that we now we, ha we need to force companies to relocate their servers and to have their servers uh, on the Russian soil. And uh, such a great thing. We got Snowden. We got all these revelations. And immediately, we grasped this opportunity. Why not to use it? And uh, so that's why we got this legislation and the law you mentioned under uh, pretext of uh, protecting uh, personal data of Russian citizens. The problem is that actually nobody asked them to protect <laughs> our personal data. It's like, it's like asking for homework. You know that stupid kid at the end of the class when the teacher's just about to wrap up and you know you're going to get out of there without having homework because the teacher forgot. And he's the one that puts up his hand. And he's like, yes, Mrs. Mapleson, do we have homework tonight? And you're like, shut the fuck up, <laughs> you know? <laughs> like, it's just like that in a sense, except a lot more serious and even more terrible because millions of people are being oppressed and they can't go online like they should. So throughout 2014 through 2015, Google and Facebook and Twitter, they start sending representatives to Moscow to try and negotiate now about how they could actually physically move the servers and where they should put them and, and how it's going to be run and all these things. And no one knows exactly what happened during those talks. Exactly. And to be frank, even now, situated in, in 2016, and still not very clear. So we have the list of companies which decided to comply. Actually, we are talking mostly about small companies like Viber. Uh, so nobody now uses Viber anymore in Russia. Uh, but, <laughs> it, just, it killed them. But, Viber was like a message service. Right, right. We got some reports about Apple and uh, it's about uh, eBay and Booking and some other companies. But most of these companies decided not to comment on their policies, not to comment at all. So what we have, we have the statements made by Russian officials. But companies decided not to comment. And that's why the situation is really tricky. In December, we 
be this sent official request uh, to all big companies, asking them to provide clarification and to explain to the users in Russia and abroad what's going on. Because actually, it's not only about Russian users. The thing is, if, say, Google or Facebook decides to comply, so it means that the Russian security services, uh, they would get well, access to all technologies used by these companies to encrypt data. Which means that it's not only about Russian users. And, and I suspect that they use the same technologies to encrypt data of Russian or American users. They, they have the same thing. So it's not only about access to data. It's also about access to technologies, to algorithms. That's why it's so sensitive. As far as I understand, the idea of these companies is to resist this pressure, but to be extremely silent, not to provoke retaliation, not to make any statements, which might be good for companies, but it's not good for us because actually we don't know what's going on. Right. And it's not good for the world. And the one thing we do know about Google is though, because I know that you've actually physically been in the building. Yeah. So there's a building and it's somewhere in near the Kremlin. Google's servers are now located on the sixth floor and in yeah. the same exact building. The FSB has offices located on, on, on the eighth floor. So basically what happened is Google, they caved in, they moved their servers, and now there's black boxes uh, uh, all over uh, again, there. Again, it's, you, it's, allegedly, it's, we don't know for sure, but it doesn't look good. Yeah, the problem is that actually we do not know what they store on these servers. <laughs> so they might use this for search things or they might use them for, say, storing personal data. We just don't know because Google is so reluctant to talk to journalists. And, not, and I'm talking not only about us, it's about everybody. The problem is that the Moscow office of Google is really, really a fortress. <laughs> it's basically part of the Russian state, in a sense. I mean, the Google in Moscow. Mm. It's like its own little kingdom. In a sense, yeah. It's not held accountable. You can't talk to it. It's, it acts just like the Kremlin. <laughs> in a way, they imitate the same approach. Yeah. yeah. yeah they... you, you can't get answers out of them at all. I mean, obviously, there's something very strange going on. And also, for a company like Google that is so forward in technology and thinking, and for them to be seen being subservient to a model such as Vladimir Putin's internet regulations in Russia would be a PR disaster that would definitely affect the stock price. <laughs> no question. That cat has to stay in the bag as much as possible. I'm sure of that. Um, but amazingly, Facebook has held out, huh? Yeah. And it seems that uh, we just got this new transparency report from Twitter. So it seems that Twitter also decided not to Comply. respond to government requests. And uh, it's, it's, it's looked like it's not only about relocation. It's also about responding to government requests to close down some accounts, mm. which is a very big thing because in 2014, they actually they closed down some accounts and they also they blocked some accounts for the Russian audience, uh, which was not very promising. But it seems something changed in, in, in 2015 and now they are more, well, tough. But... Once again, the problem is we do not know what exactly is the policy of Twitter in Russia. We are all very secretive. We do not want to talk to journalists in Russia or abroad. It's the same thing. And Google is not the only American company that has been complicit to the Kremlin, to their internet crackdown. I mean, can you explain what DPI is? In Russia, the Russian system of surveillance was always uh, about targeted surveillance. 
Uh, what does it mean? It means that you first you need to understand who are your enemy, who are your troublemakers, and then you start spying on them. So it was always, first they identified people and then they spied on them. DPI is essentially Western technology, uh, means uh, deep act inspection. And this technology was first invented for purely commercial reasons. The idea of this technology was to shape traffic. It's very specific. It can look at individual messages. It can look at individual users. If you're pirating something or you're broadcasting something that you shouldn't be yeah. for copyright reasons, it can find and you. you. Yeah, and you can immediately just uh, close down this particular service. For example, you do not want to have uh, Skype. Uh, in your cables, and you might just uh, get rid of Skype immediately. But the problem with this, with this technology and why it's so important for surveillance reason, that you can type very easily things like, for example, you can say, "Look, let me see who uh, who talk about say manifestation or Navalny." or opposition rally. Or Ukrainian radical parties, or right. democratic movements in Moscow, or... And you just need to type this thing, and immediately uh, you get the list of people talking about these issues. Wow. That's why it's so important. It's completely changed the game for, for, for the FSB, because as I said, they used to deal with targeted surveillance. Now they get this new method. They, they can identify people by what they say. Through keywords. Yeah. And that is just enormous. It's like a Google for spying, <laughs> you know, yeah, in a way. I mean, and the Russian telecoms, they're the ones that provide the internet service. They're all owned and ran by Russian oligarchs who are all pretty much loyal to Putin. There's three big ones. Where do they buy their DPI software from? Well, mostly from the West, uh, unfortunately. From Cisco Systems and from Procera. And from, say, Canada, Sandwine is a very big company. And it's very sad. And yeah, the, the problem is that they, Russia got this technology mostly because of commercial reasons, because mobile companies, they didn't want to have Skype on their lines. And very easily, the, the government well, seized this opportunity and said, look, you can use these things for filtering. And you can use these things not only for filtering, but even for surveillance. Uh, which makes it all very, very difficult because when you have a commercial technology, first of all, it means that it would be extremely effective and it would be really good. And also the thing that it's uh, for, for journalists, for investigative journalists, it's really difficult to understand uh, where this technology is used for commercial reasons and where these technologies are used for, uh, say, espionage and surveillance. That's, that's the point. Do you think that before they sold the technology, they had any idea that, that it was going to be used for this? Has anyone looked into that? What's a question? Do you think that they would care? <laughs> if Cisco Systems, an American company like that, if it's found to be selling DPI to the Russian state, which is using it for mass surveillance on the Russian people, that is another PR disaster. Well, I think that the Russian government is really smart. Of uh, they, they know how to use terminology. They never say some, anything about mass surveillance. Naturally, they use term like law enforcement interception, fighting terrorism. Yes, and law enforcement interception is such a good thing because it's used everywhere. You have law enforcement in interception in the United States, in Europe, in Germany, in France, and also in Russia, and that makes company feel fine because they think, look. 
you, we have terrorists everywhere, we need to have lawful interception, and which means, of course, the Russians they have their own terrorists to deal with, and that's why it's completely legal and, and moral to sell this stuff to them. It's, it's a very important point for me. When I talk about Russian surveillance, I, that's my first thing, is to say, look, yes, we use the same terminology, but the ideas are completely different. They're using it not for the intent that it was designed for. The, the Russian telecoms are using it for something completely different. And also, it's, it's technically it's different. And I always gave this example because it really it's very, it's very simple. It's actually about one cable or two cables. In the United States and, and the Europe, you have two cables according to European standards of telecommunication interception. And the first cable is used to send the warrant to telecommunication company. And the telecommunication company then starts interception and uses a second cable to send back the result of interception. So it's that simple. It's about two cables. In Russia, we have only one cable. And this cable is used not to send anything. This cable is used to get access to all information on service and cables of this particular internet service provider. So it's about backdoor. So when we try to say, look, it's, we are dealing with lawful, uh, lawful interception in all these countries, it's pretty similar, blah, blah, blah. No, it's not. It's different. It was specifically designed to spy. So ironically, during this entire crackdown, the Christopher Columbus of Internet Freedom, Edward Snowden, arrives in 2013. You couldn't have made that up if you wanted to. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> like That is just yeah. the most coincidental, ironic thing to ever happen. Right in the middle of this huge internet crackdown that Putin is finally doing after 13 years, the messiah of internet freedom arrives in Moscow. It, mu it must have been so baffling to you. Did it ever even uh, think that Edward Snowden could somehow be like a Russian agent? Because <laughs> it just oh, seems no, so not. odd. No, of course, yeah, we all have very well mixed feelings about that. Right. <laughs> because, well, you, you're absolutely right. On the one hand, we all praised him for his, uh, well, he's really a very brave guy. He decided to, well, to stand up and to, to make it all public and to go public, to actually to, to say, look, it's, it's all about me. I am the source of this information, which was really brave. But at the same time, when he landed in Moscow, uh, the things got so complicated immediately. All these activists, uh, from Greenwald to Snowden, they always talk about transparency which is essentially a very big thing and uh, important thing. But when Snowden landed in Moscow, he just forgot about transparency completely. We knew nothing about his whereabouts in Moscow. I mean, uh, when he was uh, held at this, in this airport, nobody was in position to actually to talk to him and to establish what's going on with him. When he finally decided to have this uh, so-called press conference, it was all staged he decided not to invite journalists to a press conference. That was really strange. And it seems he decided to invite human rights activists. But even with human rights activists, they told me openly that they felt immediately that their names were chosen not by Snowden, but by someone else. And the question is, who is this guy? And for all these months, actually years, we have Snowden in Moscow. We got more and more questions about his uh, circumstances in Moscow. For only one reason, for the reason that he, for some reason, he decided not to be transparent in Russia, which That's, is odd. I mean, they're, all right, let's face it. What could he do? He's under their control now. If they wanted to, and he started talking out against Russia and the internet regulations that are going on, dude, he's on an economy class ticket right back to D.C. They'll put him on a plane tonight. 
So in a mm. sense, he is a, unfortunately a soldier of his own situation. But at the same time, it seems like he is being used as a propaganda tool. Putin has this show called Direct Line or Direct Live or something like that, where he answers questions mm. from people. And shortly after uh, Edward Snowden landed in Moscow, one of the questions that popped up was Edward Snowden, <laughs> which was odd. And Edward Snowden asked him a question in regards to mass surveillance, kind of in a roundabout way. And Putin, of course, didn't answer the question, but it was completely staged. There's no way that Putin would just not hear this question before. He definitely knew it was yeah. coming. So why would he even accept that unless he was being forced? I mean, this guy is definitely a man of conviction. That seems to be totally 100% positive. He would not have yeah. undertaken what he had done against the might of the U.S. and military industrial complex if he didn't believe, really believe in what he was doing because his life is practically over. He can't see his family. He can't go anywhere. And now he's a prisoner in a country that is not too friendly <laughs> to really internet freedom or journalistic integrity. So – there is that sense too, but then again, I, I understand your frustration being a journalist in Moscow. It's like, come on, bro, you're telling everybody else about how bad the United States is. Look at me. <laughs> well, the thing is, uh, look, uh, of course, we never expected him to say to fight for internet freedoms in Russia. It's not his uh, war, and uh, we completely understand that. Uh, what we expected him to do was, uh, first of all, be more transparent because I completely well agree with you. Yes, he was put in a very difficult situation. But the problem is, especially when you're dealing with security services, is uh, when you approach them and you start your strange relationship and you're surrounded by these guys, the question is how you establish your rules, the rules of engagement, the rules of uh, how you talk to them. And you should establish these things from the beginning. I, I, well, I had my own experience because I was uh, interrogated by these people, and I know we, 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 we had these problems with them, and it's, uh, it's, it's might happen every, uh, every day. Who the FSB? The FSB, yeah. So the thing is, when that, what helps you to withstand this kind of pressure from security services is transparency. When you are transparent, it makes you, in a way, invulnerable. Yes, because what, what does it mean? It means that when you are approached by these people, you need to show that you are not ready for any kind of game or you have some rules. And for that, you need to show them that you do not hesitate to go public. This is a very important point. And everybody should start with that. Just saying, look, yes, I was approached by these people and I decided not to comply, blah, blah, blah. You don't need to provide all names, etc., etc. You just need to say that you were approached and, and you, you had this, uh, this, this, this kind of conversation. And the problem with Snowden that he decided to pretend that he's absolutely free and, uh, and he lives absolutely, well, like, I don't know, maybe in France or Italy, which is <laughs> not true. So why to pretend? That's one thing. And actually, this point was made by his close friend, Glenn Greenwald, in his book. Maybe you remember this thing when uh, it's, it's about Laura Poitras. She did the documentary Citizen uh, 4. Yes. And uh, Laura Poitras once asked Greenwald, look, every time I cross American, the American border, every time I'm stopped by these guys and my, I'm searched, my computer is searched, blah, blah, blah. Yes. Sometimes it's she's been very critical of the war in Iraq and she's done a lot of documentaries. And anytime she leaves the country and comes back, she's always questioned by customs officials because she's on some kind of blacklist. 
Yeah, right. And she asked Grin, look, Glenn, what I can do? And Grin, what immediately said, look, you need to go public. You need to say about these things. And, and she did. And what happened next? Well, this search just stopped. So it's a very important thing to go public. For some reason, Snowden decided not to do these things. The second point, which might be even more important, is that he, you know, that every week he makes some, I don't know, video appearances and he held some conferences in the West. Uh, and uh, sometimes it's for Amnesty International, sometimes for some other organizations, etc., etc. So the thing is that he decided for some reasons, which I do not understand, not to comment how his revelations used by the Russians. I think it's important because one, he, he made some critical remarks about the internet in Russia, but he never commented specifically about how his own revelations were used by the authorities. And given the fact that we, have, we are in the middle of this struggle about data localization, and all this stuff was justified only by Snowden revelations, that would be really helpful if Snowden might say, look, guys, it was not intended to be used by Chinese or Russians to spy on their own people. It was not about that. It was about something different. Do you think he could leave even if he wanted to? Like, say tomorrow uh -huh. he was like, I want to leave. I want to go to Venezuela. Do you think that they would let him leave? I don't know. I think he made this terrible mistake, tactical mistake, uh, when he had this uh, he had the very first press conference. Because I think he would, the, the best option for him was to insist to have some journalists around him. And if he had this thing from his very first day in Moscow... It would protect him from the ambiguity of his situation. That's what you're right. getting at, because he's not coming forward and telling people what his life is like in Moscow. Now, I know that he's always come out in the fact that he does not want to make himself the story. He wants the information to speak for itself, but that's past that now. He is the story. Yeah. Yeah, you know, and, and, and I think he's come more to realize that as, you know, he gets applause in all these different places and talks to these people in these far out lands. I mean, I just saw a video that he did with Kim.com in New Zealand, you know, a couple of years ago. The point being is he is a public figure. He has to put himself out there. And you're right, right. man. Like that, that is such a, such a good point. He should totally be more upfront and say, this is what's going on. They approached me about this. They wanted me to talk about that. I, I said not to. I said I, not to. I mean, what could the Russian state do about that? Did he refuse to talk to a, a group of ministers from the Duma? Okay. <laughs> and also, I think, the, and, I, and I understand your frustration being a Russian journalist, he's decided not to speak to any Russian journalists, just like Putin. And also, by the way, not only to Russian journalists, but also to foreign journalists, mm. but based in Moscow. Interesting. Yeah. I didn't know that. Well, he has a very, very finite people now that he trusts, I guess. So there is that too, you know? Did you see the documentary? Remember the part where he lifts up the yeah, phone? Yeah. <laughs> He's yes. like, oh my God, I should have unplugged the phone. Like they had that kind of evasive technology where they could take over the speakerphone in a hotel room. But that's the world we live in now. So where do you think things go from here? Is it just going to keep getting worse? Do you see an end game in this? I'm actually, I'm, I'm optimistic. Uh, why? Because... The whole thing we describe it in the book, uh, in terms of uh, what kind of tricks and methods the government uses against the internet, uh, we can see that we are mostly talking about targeting companies 
rather than users. Except for the blogger law. Even to be frank, even the blogger law is not such a big thing. Right, because uh, 3,000 is not that bad. Okay. No, no, no. I mean, for example, I have uh, more than 3,000 followers on my Twitter account and nobody bothered me asking me to and uh, requesting me to, to get registered. So I sued, but nobody actually asked me. So it's not so totalitarian, not so widespread. So the thing is that I think that the Kremlin is so used to deal with... Uh, hierarchical order. They really believe that all kinds of organizations might be easily coerced at going after their bosses, and they believe in this approach. And they believe that the internet is something like, something similar to the media. You have an owner, you have the editor, you have stuff, and you can put pressure. And that would be much more easier when trying to deal with all these million, millions and millions of users. And uh, in a way, it was quite effective. Centralizing the information or the, the places where people can get the information. Yeah, yeah. Starting in, in the fall of 2015. And now we are getting to the situation that we need to find a way how to put users under pressure. Everybody knows that now, well, uh, people uh, in Moscow, they use uh, Gmail, they use Facebook, they use Twitter, and they use Western-based technologies to communicate securely. Well, so, so what to do with them? If, say, these companies decided not to comply with the legislation, not to relocate with servers. So we need to find a way how to put users under pressure to actually to discourage them from using Western technologies. They, and they're quite hesitant, actually. They, they, they were playing with the idea of banning Tor, uh, this famous circumvention tool, for some months, but they, finally they decided not to block it and not to uh, not actually, not, not to outlaw it. Tor is a very important encryption key for journalists to keep their sources and themselves away in authoritative regimes. It's used, it's used in Hong Kong, it's used in Egypt, it's used by you, I would Pakistan. assume, yeah, Pakistan. Yeah. And the thing is, it's not, it's not actually banned in Russia. That's a very interesting point. Why? Why? Because we have not technical means to implement this, this, uh, well, this banning. They actually, they, they got some government contracts and they asked it, not actually asked it, they paid to some companies to find a way to, uh, to block Tor completely and they, they just failed. The second thing was for some time, actually for two years, the Russian audience, I mean the internet users, they were quite, I would say, passive in terms of using circumvention tools. But then the government made a great mistake. Uh, in the fall, they decided to block video and film sharing uh, websites, which had nothing to do with politics. They just wanted to, uh, to please some companies uh, before this copyright stuff. What happened next? In November, Russia got the second place in the ratings of countries, uh, according to the uh, usage of, of Tor. So now Russia is only second to the United States in terms of how many people use Tor. And that's encryption. <laughs> That means people are trying to hide things. Precisely. So now the, the government is quite desperate to find a way how to put pressure on the users. It's it might be really sad and might be really it might be really dangerous. Yeah, they could be biting off more than they can chew. Right. Because there's only right. so much that people could take before they go, Oh yeah? You want to do that now? You want to go after what I'm posting on YouTube and you want to go after me personally? It might be really dangerous because what we got, say, in the fall of of the, of the last year, uh, they started actually sending people to jail for posting things on uh, social networks. Really? It's a, yes, we already got some cases and people were sent to jail for three, 
two years for actually for nothing. One guy, we, we, we got things, we got actually people in jail for reposting or for sharing posts on social networks. It's just really crazy. Oh, God. It's not even original material. I would have been like, yo, you're, you're imprisoning me for a retweet? Come on, bro. It's actually about, about to send someone to jail for like. Oh, that's just horrible. But the thing is, they, they, they have no means, I hope so, to actually to start mass repression. So they cannot send to jail, I don't know, thousands of people. They try to make some examples, and they can actually frighten lots of people. But because we are already dealing with fans a committed audience, a committed community of users, thanks to all these regulations and repression starting in 2012. It seems that it had some effect, but not such a big effect. And so that's why I think it would be really interesting to see what might happen with the Russian internet, say, this year or the next year. Because these people really, they, they, they are now committed, they are mobilized, they know how to use storage, how to use encryption, and they're really committed. The second most popular use of Tor in the world is in Russia. So that means people aren't ignorant to the fact that they're being surveilled. Right. And from everything that the Kremlin has put out, they've always said things like, oh, we don't do that. We don't do mass surveillance. We're fighting terrorism. People see past the bullshit, which is, which is a great thing to see. <laughs> but he's been very smart about it. You know, that, that Vladimir Putin, his popularity remains ridiculously high. That's just so insane to me. We used to have a guy in New York. His name was John Gotti. He was a mobster. They always tried to put him on trial, and they used to call him the Teflon Don. Because you yeah, couldn't, you couldn't bring this guy down, know this. <laughs> you know, right? Yeah, and and Vladimir Putin is like the modern Teflon Don. I give the guy a lot of credit in a way. You know what I mean? It's just amazing how he's been able to come through the ranks and systematically control almost every aspect of Russian business and society. In a lot of ways, for his own personal gain, I would assume. Yeah, unfortunately, yes. But I think I really, I really believe that the internet poses an incredible challenge for him because as i said all these people uh, they might be really smart and they are smart but they used to deal with uh, hierarchy they they believe in so-called vertical they have a special expression in russian vertical of power which means that everything is governed and controlled from from the top and uh, everything should be under control but well networks have no tops it's um, it's about completely different idea and it's, it's not immediately grasped by the authorities. And I think we'll stop right there. Jimsveld is available on iTunes, Sprecher, SoundCloud, and Stitcher, and probably some other places that I don't even know about. <laughs> if you like this, please share with all your friends and family. I would greatly appreciate that. And subscribe and comment on iTunes. For Jim from Jimsveld, I greatly appreciate you guys for listening. Thanks again. Peace. I'm sailing you my peace.